Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 22 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. Beer Lascani. And I'm I'm joined here by my co-host, the hoodlum who goes by VWAP Trader 1 around the retail trading industry. A man who, when he first started, couldn't tell the difference between common stock to livestock. The man, anytime he's in a former Soviet country, the women flock in herds. God. Talking about the former 20-year market maker, JJ. JJ, how's it going? Good, Ray. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. I'm excited because uh, our guest today is a 20-year veteran writer, special writer at the Wall Street Journal, author of five books, a three-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award, which is the highest honor in business journalism, a man who I would assume is a self-loathing New York Giants fan. I'm talking about Gregory Zuckerman. Greg, how's it going? Great to be here. Though I'm not self-loathing, I do loathe Dave Gettleman, but I do not loathe myself. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I, I saw you as a Giants fan. I ha- had to get in a little dig. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a Jets fan, so it's not, not too much better. But um, pleasure, pleasure having you on, Greg. And, likewise, um, likewise. Yeah, yeah. No, and starting off with the sports, I mean, you wrote a book with your two sons uh, about athletes overcoming challenges in their youth. What, what was the inspiration behind that? Yeah, so after we wrote two together, the uh, inspiration is my uh, youngest uh, is really good sports, really good athlete, and he was born with two fingers on his left hand. And we got to talking, and we we thought it'd be kind of cool cool to go and talk to some sports stars and talk about how they overcame challenges of their own growing up, be it Mm -hmm. racism or poverty or sexual abuse, physical abuse. There are all kinds of challenges that superstars have dealt with and they each had different methods and we thought it'd be inspirational for young people and you know what the books have done really well because uh i think you can learn from these 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 uh, both men and women we have two different books one mostly uh men and the other mostly women so yeah that's that was the idea nice nice no, that's awesome i was um because you said you wrote it with your kids uh was there any challenges doing that because i know sometimes i mean at least talking from experience i know family and work doesn't always uh, makes out well. Oh, it was great. They um, came with me in interviews. We sat in like Yankee Stadium talking to Ari Dickey before a game. And, oh, nice. Uh-huh. Uh, it it couldn't have been better. Yeah, we went to Serge Ibaka, met him in his hotel, things like that. Um, Jim Abbey, we went out to California to talk to him. So, I mean, listen, I did most of the writing, so it wasn't much conflict there, but they helped me <laughs> with interviewing. They did all kinds of research. They found players. They talked to them and did, it, did other stuff with me. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Good stuff. So, Greg, as you know, um, our show, it's called Confessions of a Market Maker. We love wild confessions. We love wild stories. You broke news about a J.P. Morgan trader, the London Whale. Uh, tell us about the story and its significance. Yeah, a few, uh, few uh, years ago, this was like 2012, I got a tip from someone in the street, a senior person who works on the street. I didn't know him before, but he had read, I think, my first book, The Greatest Trade Ever. And he said, you know, there's a guy within J.P. Morgan who uh, something of a, not a rogue trader, but he really had embraced way too much in the way of risk and people were buzzing about it. <laughs> and he's putting the bank at risk of losing billions and billions of dollars. And now it's kind of skeptical of J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon, Fortress Balance Sheet, et cetera. 
but so it was just like an initial tip but then i started digging into it and and talking to people uh figuring out what what group it is figuring out how much risk they had uh and i wrote that story and jp morgan poo-pooed it they called it 10 percent a teapot jamie da- jamie diamond uh, sort of uh-huh. skeptic they kind of you know mocked mocked the story to some extent and then lo and behold they revealed billions of losses and ended up being 6.2 billion of losses uh, due to this gentleman and his team. And the guy was called the, well, I called him the London Wales. something I heard that they were referring to him as London Wales. So I put that in the story and it seemed to attract people's attention. Yeah. Yeah. It's a funny, cause you know, I, um, I come from poker. I'm a poker professional and uh, yeah, it's what we call like uh, people with a lot of money who like to donate to the table oh, yeah. is whales. So I, I appreciated that nickname, you know, staying along these lines, like, you know, you have in 20 years being in the finance industry, I'm sure you come across like, you know, from ourselves, from JJ, we hear crazy stories from his time in the industry. Was there anything that stood out to you that you reported on or you heard that was just like so baffling that was, you were like, this, there's no way this can be true. Uh, in terms of personalities or in terms of the trading or both? I mean, anything that really just stuck out to you. I've heard stuff I can't really talk about in terms of women, <laughs> women and billionaires and uh-huh. inappropriate, inappropriate stuff. Some of which was believable. And I think happened. I just couldn't prove it. There's some bad stuff that I tried to prove that I couldn't. Um, you know, we have really high bar here at the wall street journal, obviously. Sure, so people obviously. write something. Yeah. Uh, unlike some other places. Uh, so, you know, it's funny that the, there are fewer personalities than personalities than there used to be. I used to write maybe every three or four months, some hedge fund blow up, some hedge fund fraud. <laughs> I mean, I got the, t- I got a tip, not tip. I got, I got somebody who telling me about Madoff, the, the biggest mistake of my career where, um, somebody said, Hey, you should check him out as a fraud. And really? Yeah. And, I got excited, started making a couple of calls, and then I got a call from Madoff's person saying, "Hey, Greg, I hear you're you're asking about Bernie. Why don't you come in to meet with him?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I'd love to, but I'm I'm still doing my research." And they responded, "Well, you know, Greg, he's a busy guy. He travels a lot. This is the opportunity. You may not have another one. You should come in." So I went in and talked to him and challenged him all the stuff I'd heard, and I wasn't like convinced that he was legit. I thought he was front running. That's what a lot of us thought he was. Front oh, running. okay. Mm. And you know, Fernie is illegal, but it's not a Ponzi and you could see it. That's how you get, you know, the steady gains where he's stepping in. He had the legitimate side with market making. So hypothetically you're, you're front running, you're stepping in just, you know, making just a little something on each trade ahead of your clients. You do it for yourself and mm. that's how you get the steady returns. And so I came away still skeptical. But people wouldn't talk to me. And then I found some other stories I was working on. And I kind of always had a file. And again, I thought it was front running, which is bad, but it's not a Ponzi. Yeah. And yeah, I was kicking myself when, when it came out. I ended up writing the first story about this guy, Harry Markopoulos, who oh, okay. well, yeah, was, the, was the whistleblower. He went to the SEC. No one listened to him. And I kind of told the world about him. But yeah, I kind of blew that story. <laughs> Well, you got you got plenty of other good ones, I'm sure. And uh, you know, Greg, we're retail traders. Um, our already our audience is retail traders. Uh, you know, a big bu- buzzword we often hear, you know, is algos, algorithms. What insights did you pick up about algorithms writing about Renaissance technologies in uh, Simons? Oh, so many. I mean, my book um, 
called The Man Who Solved the Market is really just, um, it was the most difficult thing I ever did in my life just because that world, well, the firm is just so secretive and the world is complex and they don't like any of their signals and phenomena and uh, trades uh, coming out. So mm-hmm. I learned so much about how they're managed, about how they recruit. Everything is just different than everybody else, how they um, operate, how they trade. I mean, just the fact that it's, it's not high frequency. People assume it's high frequency. It's not. It's sort of these two-day holding periods. And it's all a cousin of technical analysis. I don't think people had realized that. They even see themselves as sort of a much, much more sophisticated version of technical analysis. So, yeah, there are all kinds of uh, insights, I think, that, that you know, hadn't been out there before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, while we're on the topics, uh, the topic of uh, Simon's, uh, I'll hand a conversation over to JJ to pick it up. Oh, great. Well, uh, you know, I've always, I've, you know, he's always been in sort of this mythical figure. And uh, I just started reading your book. I'm about uh, 60, 70 pages in, and it's great. I read your book on Paulson and I loved it. Oh, nice. Yeah. And uh, it's, I, I just want, you know, how did you start um, writing about these big events on the street? Like what, uh, when you started off at the journal, I mean, I, I always have a fascination with, uh, you know, journalism um, and, and that sort of thing, especially financial journalism. I've, I've uh, you know, I read, uh, one of my favorite books is Inside Life in Wall Street by William Worthington Fowler, and it was written in 1873. So reading your stuff is sort of like, you know, his, you know, that, that sort of thing in our time. And I, I think it's great that you're leaving some sort of a chronicle of those people, you know. Essentially, yeah. I mean, listen, I'm a buy side guy. So I grew up fascinated by how investors make their money, be it long, short, macro, what have you, little quantity. So I'm not, I've written about the sell side. Um, I have interest in the sell side, how the firms operate, but I've always been much more interested in the personality. So historically, Mm -hmm. that's where you get the interesting people. It's not to say you don't have um, sell side people that are interesting, but the risk takers are on the buy side, and I find them much more uh, interesting as characters. So as a writer, you look for characters, and you have mm. people historically, you know, it's changed. It's, they're getting much more boring, and it's getting harder as a journalist because you don't have the, the risk takers. You know, I just wrote a story last week about Carl Icahn, and he's making this big bet. Uh, I read that. Malls yeah. and CMBX. Yeah, but you don't, mm. you know, he's like 83, Charles I, uh, Carl Icahn. So, uh, <laughs> You know, I miss those days when you had blow-ups, you had frauds, yeah. um, yeah. <laughs> you had people taking risks. Like that. You don't t- now, you know, especially in hedge fund world, it's, it's more he- hugging the, in the index and you don't want to blow up because you want to cash the, your check for the management fee. So, but I've always been interested in people making big wages. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great. I, I really think it's great that people have some sort of a reference because, you know, you read the older uh, financial books on Wall Street and you hear about people like Diamond Jim Brady in the old days and, um, you know, how Vanderbilt uh, cornered Harlem Railroad and, and these mm. were sort of epic things and, and not many people really know about that stuff. So it's, it's, really, it's really great that, you know, we live in an electronic age and people can access this information. And, yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, right, you could see sort of the evolution of things going from really interesting to a little more boring over the years through, through my work. <laughs> <laughs> through through what's happened, yeah, that's great. It's uh, I, I'm really thoroughly thoroughly enjoying it, and and you also co- uh, covered Amaranth too, so you've yeah. sort of always been around, um, you know, like the big story. It's um, you know, because that yeah, was that was 
something. You know, I'm at the journal. So they, um, they, it's a great platform for me. People take your call. Um, yeah. you get access. We try to treat people really fairly. We don't never surprise people with stories. They're always aware of the point. They get to respond to them. So yeah, it's, 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 um, it works for me. And again, I really like the personalities, the people taking risks, people taking chances. You can, I think you'll learn a lot from those stories. I think there's a lot of drama in those stories. People can relate to them. I think the average reader can relate to someone who's blown up and someone who has hit a home run. I'm, I'm, also, I'm also a sports guy, as it sounds like you guys are too. So home runs and strikeouts, that's what I love doing. That's great. And, uh, you know, for we have a lot of people who are new to trading and things like that. And I, I'm a big fan of the Wall Street Journal. It's how I learned a lot. I'm self-taught. I didn't get an MBA or anything like that. I come from, I crawled my way up through the sewers of the penny stock world. Nice. Um, and <laughs> but I always read the Wall Street Journal every day, religiously. Uh, can you tell us what's, what's it like working uh, for the journal? What's, uh, you know, what kind of environment is that? Because we don't really get access to, to folks like you very often. So um, the advantage for somebody like me is if you're curious, as I am, it's uh, you've got the ability to find things out. So a few years ago, we came in in the morning and there was an announcement that Mohammed El Arian, the number two guy, Pimco, mm -hmm. was stepping down to spend more time with his family. And if you know anything about Wall Street, people on Wall Street, you realize that <laughs> people don't usually want to spend more time with their family. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, so... Other people can be suspicious and, you know, that not much they can do about it. And it, it, by the way, it turns out Mohammed el does love his family. He's got, he's very close with them. But anyway, be that as me, it, it, something smelled to me. Something smelled yeah. fishy. So I, I said, all right, let's find out what really happened. And mm -hmm. yeah, that's the beauty of the, being at the Wall Street Journal. You can find stuff out if you dig, if you ask, if you push. And I've been here a little while, so I've got people, you know, at different firms. So I ended up writing stories my colleagues about Bill Gross and Mohammed El Ari and fighting and, and the turmoil within the firm and eventually Gross got kicked out. So yeah, being at the Wall Street Journal allows you to um, go and, and find out, satisfy your curiosity and find out what's really happening behind the scenes. But, but it's also um, the, the level of, there are tons of editors. We take things seriously. We, the, the worst thing you can do as a reporter even worse than getting beat on a story is to have a mistake in a story. So uh, mm -hmm. you're paranoid. You end up being paranoid about mistakes and you want to treat people fairly. The thing about our industry, as you know, is it's, it's smaller than you think and you establish a reputation. If I screw somebody, it'll get out there. No one will want to talk to me again. So you want to treat people fairly. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you, how do you deal with, you know, especially when you're, you know, you're sort of digging around and in, in, in some pretty, uh, influential people's sort of, uh, you know, in their backyards, do they, do you, do you ever encounter any kind of resistance? I mean, uh, how have you dealt with anything like that? Are they? Yeah. Uh, well, I generally um, have a collection of pictures that I've collected on people and just, if I need them, I just go to those. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah. Blackmail. I always find blackmail. Really Beautiful. Effective. Effective. No, I'm just kidding for the just record. Kidding. Just kidding. Um, you know what? Good stories want to come out is my belief. Mm -hmm. Meaning people, um, it's going to come out. People want to share when they've accomplished something big. They, even if they, they're not supposed to, some people who are part of something big want to um, chat about it. Maybe not on the record, but uh, maybe on background or for record, etc. The, the flip side is 
there are people that have done things that are wrong or messed up, etc. And they too often want to correct maybe a misunderstanding out there. You know, so many times I've heard, hey, this firm, this individual lost a huge amount of money. But then you dig into it and it, it's some offsetting position, it's a hedge, etc. So I think people appreciate the ability to tell you that what's really happening. So there's always some reason somebody will talk. It may take a while to get them to talk. I, I'm a big believer that um, you can you can convince or persuade people to talk by being honest and telling them, this is the Wall Street Journal. We're going to treat it fairly. We're taking it seriously. Better to talk to us than other people. And, and I'm a big believer on that. Good stuff. And um, just a couple of quick, more ones. Uh, any, uh, any plans to write a book about Steve Cohen? Oh, is he there? Hold on. I somehow just lost you. I don't know why. Oh, okay. Can you, can you guys hear me? Yeah, yeah we can hear you. Yeah. Apologize. Uh, no let me make sure. Let me turn this up just a little bit. For some reason. Hold on. Let me put on headphones. Hold on one sec. All right. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Perfectly. Okay, great. Sorry, I missed that question. No problem. Just wondering if you're ever, uh, I really enjoy your, uh, your writing. So I was just wondering if you're ever planning to do a book on Steve Cohen. Um, there was a good one. So no, Black oh, Edge my. is out there and she did okay. a nice job. But I am always looking for new topics. So uh, after the Simons one is done, I mean, it's done, but after I've start, stopped publicizing it and all that, I'm speaking, I'm doing a lot of speaking around the country. I'm going to London on Sunday. But after I'm done with that, I'm going to be uh, eager for a new topic. So any of your uh, listeners have good ideas, send me an email at the journal. Uh, tell me what I should be working on. Good stuff. And one last question, and I've got to ask because, you know, I, I've got a guy from the journal in front of me and I never thought I'd have access. Do you ever get... <laughs> Do you ever get, uh, well, you know, I, this is how I learned about finance was from reading your newspapers. So Me too. You, you know, <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you ever get that, you know, blue horseshoe loves Anacott steel kind of thing? Does that, <laughs> I, I had to ask, you know, it's there. <laughs> uh, you know, nothing quite like that, but you get yeah. tips all the time. You get anonymous tips. You get people who sound sketchy. You get yeah. people who you've got to vet what they say. Sometimes. You know, they sound scared and nervous, but they actually have an accurate tip. I mean, I guess the misconception is people think, oh, anonymous tip, you run with the story. It's really just the first step yeah, in the exactly. process. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is sort of old school in that you'll get somebody out of nowhere with, with some, um, some, call, some phone call or an email or sig on Signal or WhatsApp or something <laughs> reaching out. And, and, you know, sometimes actually what they're saying is true. Lots of times it isn't. You got to run it down. So it's, it's, it's a little bit as you would imagine. Okay. Just, uh, thank you. I just uh, had to put it <laughs> <Yeah>. out there. <laughs> yeah. Ray, I'll, uh, I'll hand it over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I guess bringing it back to the book, uh, Greg, what was something you took away from Simon, whether, you know, one of his personal qualities, abilities, his mindset, et cetera, you know, that made you go, wow, I, I need to improve in this area. Well, I can't even come close to uh, doing what they do. But I, I guess the thing that jumped out at me and, and surprised me is we all know he's a quant. We all know he's a math genius. He, um, he, before he even started Renaissance, he was one of the most acclaimed mathematicians, geometers of the last 50, 100 years. Mm -hmm. His work is still having a lot of impact in the world of math and physics, et cetera. But what I didn't realize that he starts Renaissance and, you know, 66% a year since 1988 with a sharp ratio of like seven Jeez. and a half. So 
yeah, he goes down as the greatest money maker in modern financial history. He's got a better record than Buffett, et cetera. I mean, he does use leverage, so you could argue, well, Buffett doesn't. And Buffett is a bit, has a bigger company, and, and, and Renaissance uh, has kept their key funds at $10 billion. But, hey, no one forced um, Buffett to get so big. And there's something to be said for capping your AUM. Anyway, mm-hmm. the, the thing that actually jumped out at me is how he's a quantity, he's a mathematician, but he's also really uh, talented at managing these mathematicians, these scientists who work for him. And I wouldn't have thought that. And he's created this environment where people work together. It's very collegial. They're all on the same page. He rewards people in very unique ways. Like the guys who clean the data get paid really well too. And they're encouraged and even in in junior people can see the code. There aren't many technology companies where junior people can see every piece of the code and can work on and can improve it and are are encouraged to. So I was kind of, um, sh- surprised by his ability to manage genius, not just be a genius, but manage it too. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, know, that, that's real interesting. Cause you know, that was something I, you know, that's actually going to be my follow-up question to you um, on this. Cause you know, you were saying how you, uh, you like buy side guys. And we actually, we had the um, buy side guy on here, attorney Duff. I'm sure you've heard of him. You wrote the book. Yeah. Um, we had attorney on and that, you know, reading attorney's book, that was something to me that stood out to him is that like the, even the way he moved up was really through his like social intelligence, his way to network with people. Hmm. Do you believe like Simon, is this something he did? De- I don't know if this is something you even know. Like, did he always have it? Was it something he developed? Like, because you, you don't necessarily equate math people with being good with people. Uh, you're right. Uh, did he develop it? No, he's born in a very unique way. He's got this ability to do the math and do the quant stuff, but it's funny. He always had one foot in each world, meaning that one foot in the world of academia, but also one foot in the real world. He always loved money. He always, he wasn't someone to business so much, but he was trading here and there. He used, he traded his, the wedding money that he got. He, um, tried developing these early, early quant approaches while he was a code breaker for the government. So, and he always wanted to kind of get really wealthy so he could maybe use his power and ended up doing that and influence society. So he's, it is good with people. He's actually a funny, witty guy. Mm-hmm. He's a chain smoker. You know, I spent a lot of time with him and that smokes in your face and you have to just deal with it. He's like old school like that. Yeah, this, that's great. And, and like I talk about in the, in the book, he like ashes wherever he wants. Like he's been Simon. So like with an employee, he's done with his cigarette. He needs to put that cigarette out. He, he, he's put it wherever he wants to put it. He put it, puts it in coffee, people have coffee mugs. Um, there's a story in the book that's where hilarious. it's a big meeting and he puts it out in a cake that these people are having. So, hey, you know, when you're worth $23 billion and you're the greatest moneymaker Wall Street has seen, you, you can do what you, you can do all kinds you of things you, you and I can't. So he's That's a fast. So, so to answer your question, he's able to do the math stuff and the quad stuff and building algorithms and signals, but he also is great at recruiting and knowing what, what motivates different people and just having a good conversation. And, and he's a pretty funny guy. So he's a, he's a rare breed. Yeah. Yeah. And I assume that's why he's so successful. Just the rare combinations. Yeah. Probably uh, those skills plus many others. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just real fascinating. Real fascinating. Yeah. Go ahead, Jay. Mm-hmm. I just got a really quick question. Do you think it's because of his background in math that he succeeded where Meriwether failed with long-term capital? <sighs> um, that was among the reasons. There are other reasons too. The Meriwether guys got more cocky and overconfident in their models. And the thing about Simons and his colleagues, they've emphasized to me is that 
they always had a dose of skepticism. So they didn't. Uh, so if you remember with LTCM, they sort of doubled down and they yes, figured eventually yeah. that the trades would work. And in the, I write in my book, uh, there are times of crisis where, where Simons will pull back. He will mm -hmm. reduce their exposure and people within the firm get pissed off. And there's a lot of, there was a lot of tension I write about in uh, 2007 specifically where everyone else said, these are great opportunities. We got to add to our possessions and Simons overruled them. And usually they never, ever, ever overall their models, but in crisis they do. So they went the opposite oh. direction of LTCM. So there oh, are, okay. and I write about, I write about some other distinctions between the two, but, and, and they weren't quite quants, I would say, LTCM. And, and what, what Simons has created is a, is a lot of machine learning uh, in their system. Mm -hmm. It operates on its own. They don't even know what's happening all the time. So there are a lot of distinctions, but yeah, similarities too. And maybe also because Meriwether was a, you know, was a trader. So traders naturally have, especially with yeah. size, they have a, they have the tendency to try and bully a market mm. where Simon's yeah. maybe uh, he'll step back. Right. These are guys who never traded. They aren't interested in trading. They're not from wall street. They don't have yeah. a finance background. I mean, a lot of the LTCM guys were finance professors, economics professors and such. Oh, and okay. they don't, the, 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 the Simons and Renaissance have no patience for that. They're scientists. They're looking for patterns. They're looking for structure in the market that people don't appreciate below the surface. And that's not what LTCM was doing. Understood. Thank you. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. I, I would assume, Greg, that their background was a, was a, a positive coming into it, right? Because, I mean, a lot of them didn't, they had no interest in finance. Yeah, you would you would think it's, it'd be a positive. It totally was. Yeah, you you would think. I mean, the crazy thing about this whole uh, experience, the Renaissance experience, is that the people who didn't care about investing. You know, I read all the books like you did growing up, mm -hmm. and I would go to my local bank. We didn't get the Wall Street Journal, but I would go to like the local bank to read the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. and I was into it. My my camp um, counselor would bring me back Barons from his day off. Oh that. yeah, the Barons classic. Yeah, right. It, Sunday it reading. Yeah, and, and, and you would think it would be somebody like me or those types of kind of people that, that conquered the market, that solved the market. And yet it's Jim Simons and his colleagues. They're all math and, and science PhDs. They don't care about the market. They don't care yeah. about companies. I still love I, – I, I thought it was fascinating that like my Skippy peanut butter, there's no company called Skippy. It's owned yeah, by Procter & Gamble, so. which, which owns mm -hmm. a bunch of other stuff. And um, – I don't know. I find that fascinating. They don't, the guys at Renaissance don't care about business. <laughs> they don't care about that. They're just yeah. scientists. And, and yeah, it did help them, but it's, it's fascinating. These outsiders are the ones who figured out investing when all of the experienced people who have actually have an interest um, right. failed. Right, right. Um, well, well, you know, you know I, I say that because like, I mean, it's probably easy to easy to, for me to say this in hindsight, but having, you know, the way scientists and math, mathematicians how their minds work how they look at things how they're very scientific method of looking at things mm. that's what i meant that as being a positive coming into yes, it where you have yes. a lot of people who come from more or less uh for lack of a better term they're just degenerates coming in trading or or they're you know they got <laughs> they, they got a sketchy background you know that that's that's what i was getting at yeah 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 i i think that's yeah. exactly right. listen i think you touched on the key to this whole thing is that System, I'm a big believer in systems, not stories, meaning, mm -hmm. and, and, and I wasn't as much of a believer before I started my two-year research on this book, but yeah, we all get, or those of us who aren't quantitative, you get caught up in stories and narratives and, right. you know, Theranos and WeWork and, oh, gosh. and Uber, right? It, it, sounds, <laughs> it sounds plausible. You get excited. I mean, the, you know, Theranos, well, everyone got, <laughs> and, and, 
and, and, and that's what happens when you're not a scientist. And you're exactly mm -hmm. right. When you instead the scientists look for systems and they and they hand there's no emotion there. They hand over. Exactly. They don't want it. They take the, they try to take the emotion out. So yeah, that's exactly right. That, that helped them a, a ton. And I guess the lesson from Theranos is just because you have a black turtleneck does not mean you are Steve Jobs. <laughs> there you, know? you go. There you go. That's a good lesson. Yeah. That's a good <laughs> lesson. That's funny. That's funny. So Greg, uh, what was Simon's attitude towards you or how, how was that whole relationship? Cause I, I could assume he probably wasn't fully open or fully embracing of you. Yeah. So for a long time, he wouldn't talk to me. I was up nights worrying that he wouldn't talk to me. How do you write a book about him without even talking to the guy? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not a biography. It's really more of a story about how this group of individuals, including Simons, conquered the market, how they made the money, and then what they did with the money, which is uh, impact society. But yeah, so eventually, he agreed to sit down with me. We ended up um, spending over 10 hours together talking and emailing and all that. But he wouldn't talk about secrets within the firm. He was pretty mm -hmm. clear about that. But he, he, he was great about everything else, his early history. He was a code breaker for the government. He had his math accomplishments, childhood, which had interesting lessons. And a lot of that stuff is important for trading too. And, and today he's doing interesting things in philanthropy and such. So eventually we forged this relationship, but he never was happy about the book. Even a few months ago, he asked me, do you, do you have to do it? All that kind of stuff. So I, we, have a we have a complicated relationship, mm -hmm. let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, he, he just wasn't comfortable with him himself being out there or he didn't want the company written about? Um, it's a good question. I think part of it is it's the most secretive firm on Wall Street. So he, they're not mm -hmm. supposed to say anything. They don't want anybody hearing any of their secrets, any of their approaches, their hiring, their, how they deal with, with data, what kind of data they have. And I get into all that. I also think that it's, he thought it was probably hypocritical for him him to tell his employees they can't talk to the press and yet he was going to talk to me. Um, and he doesn't need me. What does he need? He doesn't need us. He's worth $23 billion. <laughs> he, he doesn't have, I mean, he has outside money to some extent, but they, they don't really need it. Um, yeah. So and he's, he's an 81 year old guy. He'd rather be focused on what he wants to focus than talking to Greg Zuckerman. So he, he kind of went along for the ride. And I think it was, we have a fine relationship now, but it was complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. That's fine. That's funny with him just ashing his cigarettes anywhere he wants. Yeah. That's, that's great. That's funny. Um, so Greg, any participation in the markets on your end? I'm not allowed to as per wall street journal oh, really? uh, okay. rules, unfortunately, or fortunately, I probably would be bad at it. I don't, I don't have the temperament. I, at one point I thought about going into trading and such. And I, I unlike maybe you and your clients and I, I, I don't leave things at the office. I take it home with me and Oh, yeah. mull it over and you got to be able mm -hmm. to leave it like a closer in the bullpen. And so I don't yeah. think I had the right temperament to be a, a trader or an investor. I could have been made like an analyst maybe, but uh, who knows? So I think it worked out for the best, but yeah, I'm not allowed to, I can have like index funds and things like that. The market mutual funds is on. There are all kinds of restrictions that they put on and because you don't want a conflict of interest. Obviously you don't want to be writing right. about a company that turns out you own it. That, that would look, exactly. that'll be awful. Oh, gosh, um, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Good stuff. That makes sense. Yeah, no, you nailed it on top of the head with the temperament. That, that's something me and, uh, me and Jay discuss all the time. How do we oh, leave? Really? Yeah, yeah, I mean, how do you, it's hard. I mean, we're human beings, right? Like, how do I disconnect my personal life and it my is, emotions? Yeah. From I mean, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard. I, I'm, I'm luckier that way. I come from, my parents forced me to, uh, to take microbiology when I was a 
when I was uh, in university, thinking that I would be a doctor, you know, common Asian kid thing. Hmm. Uh, and uh, even though I <laughs> had no talent for it or the brains, <laughs> I, I at least <laughs> learned the scientific method. And, and I've tried to apply that a little bit to trading. So, <laughs> huh. it's the, That's uh, interesting. That's interesting. You know, yeah, everybody, listen, uh, everybody's got another approach. You know, exactly. you know, Renaissance, they've got their approach. It works mm -hmm. for them. They do this trading. That's on average a two-day holding period. They look for short-term um, trends in the market. But, you know, other people have their own approach. It doesn't mean this is the only approach. Exactly. Right. right. Exactly. Right. Well, it, it, it does when, when you're relying on a, like, algorithmic or mathematical approach. And I can just speak from my experience playing poker because, you know, poker back in the days was very like, oh, look the, your opponent in the eye and read his soul, right? Now yeah. We, yeah. We, have, we have solvers. We have computer programs mm -hmm. that can tell you, no, actually – <laughs> poker is a math based uh, it's just a one big math problem hmm. and so now everything i do is just based off of you know uh percentages and et cetera. this i'll do a certain percent and so it, it takes hmm. emotion at least it takes that human element of decision making out which can really mess you up in the long run but hmm. last question yeah makes sense for you greg appreciate your time um all your years covering finance is there any advice that you could give to us as retail traders. I know this, you know, you don't cover retail trading at all, but is there anything that maybe you could give our listeners a little nugget of wisdom? Yeah, listen, I've, um, first of all, if you're thinking about investing, um, allocating to a, a money manager, be careful. They charge way too much. I'm talking about hedge funds, even the most sophisticated hedge funds over the years have just been become mm -hmm. much more cynical about what they do in the edge. You don't, it's really, really hard to get an edge. I've been doing this for 23 years, writing about these guys. It used to be that they outperformed and they really could get an information advantage. And I write about it in the book too. I mean, you know, The Man Who Solved the Market is a book about Jim Simons and, and Renaissance, but it's also about the evolution of investing. I talk about different approaches, fundamental and, and quantitative. And yeah, I've become much more convinced how, how hard it is for fundamental investors today. But, and you know, in general, people are shifting to passives and they're, they're smart too. Um, and, but I do think that the, 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 for the individual investor, you got to find some niche. You got to find some corner of the market, some mm. approach that mm. is unique because if you're going to compete with guys like Jim Simon, it's just impossible. And they're short term. So people I would think should be a little bit longer term. You don't want to run you know, at the poker table as it were with, with Jim Simons and his, and his guys are PhDs. They've got better data, they have better systems, better everything yeah. than everybody else. But um, there are markets they don't focus on. There are approaches that they, approaches they don't do. There are niches in the market. There are corners, um, be it you know, specific. Let's say you're, you, you know a sector, you're a biotech guy. You're in that world, you know that world a little bit, you're focused on that. I, I could see making money doing that, or you've got a specific trading approach that others, the professionals, for whatever reason, liquidity or otherwise, don't focus on. Mm -hmm. you, you really got to be careful. You're not going up against these people, but there are ways to do it. For sure. For sure. No, I think that's great advice. Like, it's pretty much find your edge, find where the edge yeah, is yeah. and exploit Make it. Sure you've got one, but yeah. Mm -hmm. no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. JJ, anything else for our fine guest? No, no, that's it. I'm just really uh, very pleased and quite grateful that you were on the show. It's uh, it's wonderful to talk to, you know, uh, you know, hey, you know, growing up reading the Wall Street Journal, now I get to talk to someone who actually writes for the Wall Street Journal. So it's it's a very very cool thing for me. Sure. No. Great. Great chat with you guys. Yeah, yeah. And so that that concludes today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review it for us. If you're interested in learning market profile, if you're keen on trading a liquid market. If you got a small account, 
if you trade, if you're a crude oil trader, a new addition to our room, come join JJ and I at microefutures.com. Greg, tell the listeners where they can find you and anything else you like, uh, you want them to know. At the Wall Street Journal, Gregory.Zuckerman, Z-U-C-K-E-R-M-A-N, at WSJ.com. But I'm also on Twitter, at G Zuckerman. I'm on LinkedIn. And check out the new book, The Man Who Solved the Market. And it's a great – It's I'm 60 pages in, and I love it. It's great. Enjoy the rest of the way. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent, Greg. Thanks again for your time. And so All for, right, great. Have a great day, guys. Yep. Thank and you. for Dave Gettleman's number one fan. Oh, God. <laughs> for, that would be my <laughs> holiday present for him to step down. I, we have to wait a year or two. Uh, yeah, don't yeah, – thanks for leaving things on a depressing note. Yeah. Oh, ouch. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I had to. No, when I'm I saw kidding. you were a Giants fan, man, uh, you, you know, I'm a Jets fan, Greg. So it's, you know, Adam Gaze, we could go on and on. And so yeah, no, I, I think he's, Gettleman's cursed my team. But anyway, um, yeah. that, that's for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Next one. Exactly. <laughs> well, Greg, thank you for JJ. Um, the man who's getting in trouble near the equator. You guys stay safe. <laughs> All right. Talk to you guys. All right. All right. Thanks. Bye.